Good morning again. I don't look like John David 25 years from now, or maybe I do a little bit. I don't know what he's going to look like then. But uh, unfortunately, he's come under the weather this week. It started with just a sinus infection that then settled in his throat. He has no voice right now. And then it developed into one of, he gets uh, periodically, hasn't had many lately, but he gets some very severe migraines and was up most of the night uh, with complicated migraines. So in addition to uh, Keith and Deanne and praying for them, would you join me in prayer for John David and then we will uh, jump into the word. Lord, indeed, we bring John David to your throne and we bring Deanne and Keith simultaneously before you. Lord, you are the great comforter that offers peace beyond understanding in ourselves and in our minds and in our fears and our apprehensions, we don't find peace. We pray for Deanne and for Keith that as she goes through this, she would find you a fortress, a protective wing over her. Lord, you would give her peace that no one can understand, doctors, nurses, Keith, or anyone else. Lord, we also pray you would relieve John David of pain. Lord, help him to get rest for his body. Lord, restore him. His desire is to preach your word, and he couldn't do it. Lord, I pray he would find comfort in knowing your plan is the only one that matters, and he would submit to that and rest. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. So you very likely um, had a conversation with your spouse or friend, or certainly thought at least to yourself, when driving around the South, just about anywhere, how many churches there are. When you're in small downtowns, you can go three blocks and pass six churches. It's astonishing. Indeed, all over the South, I would imagine collectively as we came to downtown Canton this morning, we passed multiple dozens. In fact, the Mayfields probably passed several dozen themselves driving from where they do. We also live in an era, the era of megachurches, do we not? Follow these statistics on megachurches, this blew me away. The United States now has well over 1,500 megachurches, according to the Hartford Institute for Religious Research, which defines a megachurch as an active Protestant congregation with an average of 2,000 members or more each weekend attending with multitude, obviously, of outreach programs and various ministries. The same research also found roughly 90 megachurches that have a weekly attendance of over 10,000 members. The largest currently averages over 60,000 members in attendance. So some have used the sheer volume of Christian churches, contemporary Christian churches, and then the booming expanse of this megachurch movement to tout that the contemporary Christian church has never been in better shape. 
However, despite, despite both the plethora of Christian churches and this megachurch phenomenon, particularly in the South, many believers struggle to find a place on Sunday morning that they can hear the careful, methodical explanation of God's word to them on Sunday morning. I've heard several visitors just in the last several months who have come and visited, many have stayed, that commented to me how difficult their search was for a church that just preached the word. That's all they were looking for. And yet they had visited for months, searching for months, and a couple of them had almost given up the idea that it even existed anymore. Actually, we shouldn't be that surprised by this trend. We don't have to look very far, even just within ourselves initially, because we recognize that the nature of sinful humankind is prone to wander from God and from his word. A great hymn from the 1750s we sing, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. We all know the weakness of our flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil would all be pleased if clear explanation of God's word on Sunday was silenced. Scripture itself also provides several warnings directly from God about drifting or drifting from or fully forsaking God and his word, the truth as he's recorded in his word. In the seventh century, a de desert sheep herder about 80 miles south of Jerusalem received the word of the Lord. You know his name is, his name is Amos. Amos received God's word and wrote for us, gave one such warning. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land not a famine of bread or hunger for bread or a famine for thirst for water, but rather for the hearing of the words of the Lord. I'm afraid that today we have a famine in our land, a famine of sound teaching of the truths of God's words. We've watched this trend change. It's shifted into high gear over the past 15 to 20 years. Writing specifically about the phenomenon, Steve Lawson in his book in 2003, almost 20 years ago, entitled Famine in the Land, quote, in this radical paradigm shift, exposition has been replaced with entertainment, preaching with performances, doctrine with drama, and theology with theatrics. He goes on to say, it's a strange twist that the preaching of the gospel of Christ is now foolishness, but not to the world, but to the contemporary church. So when I found out John David was sick and knew I would have the opportunity to preach, I struggled and I really wanted to talk about why do we cling to, hold fast to, the expositional preaching of God's word. So I began writing notes and pondering the topic. 
and I struggled not to find a topic, but that the material was way too expansive in Scripture. I'd love to spend some time this morning in Psalm 1 talking about the blessed man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night and then describes the outcome of his life. Or we could turn to Psalm 19 and spend weeks, frankly, one of the most cherished, beautiful, clear, broad descriptions of the sufficiency of Scripture anywhere. If you've not listened to MacArthur's Psalm 19 sermon, you need to. The word, the commandment, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, more desirable than gold, sweeter than honey. We could go just about anywhere in Psalm 119, right? That's where we find the key question in life answered. How can a young man or woman keep their way pure? By taking heed according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Don't let me wander from your commandments. I have treasured or hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I'm sure you have your favorites as well. That's just in the book of Psalms. Any of these passages would be great springboards to explain and look at the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture and why we need to cling to it. We don't have time, obviously, in a morning to look exhaustively at it. In fact, I hope at least that we can barely lift the corner of the blanket and get a peek under the blanket of what God has to say about the value of sticking to his word and his word only. So after thinking about it, I wanted to really just do a couple of things. One is I want to take the mystery off the word exposition. We use it, we hear it, it's written about a lot. It is not complicated, it is extremely simple. So I want to define it together and just know what we're talking about. And then secondly, I want to open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. You're welcome to do that in advance and we'll read the last four verses of chapter 3. That will be our text for the morning. But let's first look at the definition. Exposition is simply explaining scripture so that the hearers understand it and can relate it to their life and application. Sure sounds simple, doesn't it? We might expand it a bit discussing about uh, the need to study in its near and broad context and maybe in its historical setting. That certainly helps understand and then expose it perhaps a little better. John David could speak great, but we're really getting into interpretation at that point. J.I. Packer put it extremely simple a couple of decades ago, said the preacher should become the mouthpiece for the text, opening it up, applying it as a word from God to his hearers, talking only in order that the text itself can speak and be heard. Ezra was an expositor. The people wanted to get the book of the law and have it read in Nehemiah 8. He was asked to bring the book out and to read it, and they read it in a public place, eager people listening. In verse 8, it says, And they read the book from the law of God, explaining to give the sense so that they understood the reading. 
it wasn't for a mental understanding, although it's got to pass through our brains. It was for application. It was for heeding the word of the Lord. They wanted to listen, to understand, to apply. The preacher's job then is pretty simple. Careful explanation of what God has said so that the hearers can respond. The second thing I wanted to do after defining it, and if you haven't already opened to 2 Timothy 3, do that. That'll be our text, verses 14 through 17, the last four verses of the chapter. It is here that we're going to try to answer the question that I've posed already. Why is expository preaching paramount to the church? And why does Canton Bible Church have it written in our documents and we're committed to clinging to it? We'll see in these four verses that Scripture leads to salvation in 14 and 15 and that Scripture leads to sanctification in 16 and 17. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we begin to open his word and read it together. Lord, it is with thanksgiving and awe and fear that we come before you. We find in this passage that this is your word, the word of each writer as recorded, moved along by your spirit, that what's pinned in each individual word and what's pinned as a whole is yours. Lord, help us to grasp what that really means. In your name we pray, amen. So this book of 2 Timothy is Paul's very last pastoral letter. It's likely, and he knew it, his last correspondence to his faithful son in the faith. He senses that he's at the end of his life and ministry. If you look just past our text to chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, we read Paul writing, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I have kept the faith. There's a tone throughout the letter that he is fully aware that this is the end. But it's not despair. The letter is punctuated with urgency. If you were to write a letter to a long-term, not just friend, but co-worker, and not just acquaintance, but lock-arms partner, and you haven't been with them for years because you've been imprisoned, and you were to pin what you know is your last letter to them, and you're thinking, got pen in hand, paper, what is on your mind? What do you want to communicate? Certainly you may reflect back on some of your fondest memories together. There's some of that in, in 2 Timothy. You certainly, essentially, the things you want to, the strongest words of encouragement that you could give in their relationship is something that might be on your mind. And it was certainly in this letter. But what you find mostly is a stress of Paul's most urgent concerns and warnings for 
young Timothy, not so young anymore, as he carries on the mantle and the baton of ministry. So it is in this letter of Paul's, his last letter. There are over 22 verbs in this short four chapters that have the imperative tense, which carries like a command. This first one is right at the beginning. Let's read the text together, beginning in verse 14. We'll read down through the end of the chapter. You, however, continue, that's the imperative, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through the faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. Let's do a quick glance back. It begins with you, however, continue in these things. There's, he's setting up a contrast, which makes you wonder, what is he contrasting? So flip back with me, if you would, to chap, the beginning of chapter 3. He sets the, the theme and the context for what he's talking about, but realize that in these last days, difficult times will come. And then he begins in two through five and on down to describe the character of the men that will be prevalent in the last days. He kind of concludes that in verse 10 and 11 in contrast to those men who oppose the truth and ultimately, he says, display their foolishness to all. Paul then commends Timothy in 10 and 11 for his faithfulness in following Paul's example but then jumps back in 13, right before our passage, to the character of the men in the latter days, and says, but evil men will get better in the end. I'm just making sure you're listening. Is that what it says? No. But evil men will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Then we come to our passage, you, however, Timothy, in contrast to these men, you continue in the truth. That's one of the imperatives that carries that command. Do this, Timothy, you must, you must continue. Don't hesitate, don't pause, don't turn aside, don't get sidetracked, stick with it. Don't let anything pull you off the road. In the midst of a world gone mad around you in sin, and it only takes one evening of the network news to see that it's around us as well, right? What are you to do? You are to continue in the scriptures, hold fast to what you know is true. Paul gave similar advice to the Philippians in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. He said to the Philippians, do all things without complaining and arguing so that you can prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you are shining as lights in the world, holding firmly to the word of life. Continue, Timothy, 
with what you have learned. And 15, he tells them, kind of reflects on what it is he learned and where he learned it. Timothy, continue in these things that you have learned from me and that you've become convinced of, no doubt, when they studied and dialogued and cross-referenced in the scriptures to understand them in detail together. And then he, he highlights, you, you remember, you, knew the, you know the people, you know me, Timothy. We lived together. And then he reflects back on those who taught Timothy when he was young, very young. In chapter 1, he referenced that his faith came from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, both of which he says were saints in the Lord. No doubt these ladies, these saints, servants of God, faithfully taught young Timothy the truths of Scripture. God's Word is integral to salvation. It is these sacred writings that are able to impart God's wisdom, wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 10 tells us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him who they've not believed, and how can they believe on him they've not heard, and how can they hear without a preacher? And then Paul concludes that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. No doubt these women had laid a groundwork in young Timothy's mind of godly wisdom that led to his salvation. That's why we teach God's word to adults, to children. It's able to give wisdom that leads to eternal life. We must continue. We will not depart because God empowers his word by his spirit to accomplish his will. Amen. So after exhorting Timothy to continue and then reflecting a bit on his salvation, his heritage in the Lord, he apparently puts on his Professor Paul cap because he jumps into doctrinal statements in verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God. You probably know it. It is the word God breathed. The words are God's words. Every word is God's word. The total of all of the words represent a complete revelation that God intended for us. It's the whole counsel of God. It's also authoritative because he is the author. It is eternal because he is eternal. His truths will never change. His promises are sure because he cannot lie terms of this idea of God breathed, Peter gave, gives us the clearest, we're not going to dive into inspiration this morning, it would take us down a long rabbit trail. It's a great study, important study. We would certainly go to 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21 if we were to talk about it, which says, but know first of all that no prophecy of scripture become, or excuse me, no prophecy of scripture 
becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, many of which knew they were speaking the words, the very words of God. We're in Revelation with the kids. Time and time again, it's clear as a bell. John says, the angel said, we're, you're gonna show, we're gonna show you some things, you were to write them down and tell the people. The beginning of the book of Revelation, God even says that a vision will be given to Jesus Christ through the angel to give to John to write for the saints and it included the letter to the seven churches and then the remainder of the end times that's in Revelation. John knew almost through the entire book that he was writing the very words of God. God breathed it. It's alive because he lives. God's word is at work accomplishing his will. Flip back, if you will, just a chapter to, or a couple of chapters to First Thess chapter two. It's actually a couple of books. First Thess chapter two. God's word is alive and at work in reflecting on what God had done in the young Thessalonian church, Paul comes to chapter two, verse 13, and in his prayer says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of mere men, but what it really is, the word of God. And then look at this, which also is at work in you who believe. The Word of God is at work in believers. What is it doing? What is God's intent for the Word in your life? Not exhaustive, but certainly an absolutely wonderful list of the works of Scripture that God intends in your life and mine are the next profitable things that it says that it is intended for. Let's look at them. So scripture leads to salvation, and here scripture leads to our sanctification. It grows us in Christ-likeness, in godliness, in life, thoughts, beliefs, and words that please the Father. Being profitable just implies it's beneficial, productive, and sufficient for us to accomplish these four works. The first one is teaching. It's not the process of teaching. This is the content, the body of knowledge. I'm going to say this twice, but I want you to listen to it. It's critical sentence. God breathed scripture provides for you and me the comprehensive and complete body of divine truth necessary to live as your heavenly father desires you to live. God-breathed scripture, Genesis to Revelation, provides for you a comprehensive and complete body of divine truth necessary to live as your heavenly Father desires you to live. Where else should we spend time? To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we must abide in his word. 
I love John 14, 21, where Jesus himself speaking says, he who has my word and keeps it, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose or manifest or open up myself to him. What a promise. Do you, do you want to see more of Jesus Christ? How will he manifest more of himself to you? By abiding and heeding his word. If you want to please God, and if you are in his word with a heart to please God, you will experience this second work of the scripture. You can't avoid it. Reproof. It's rebuking to convict of bad behavior or false doctrine. It's pretty simple. It's still content, by the way. It's the content that convicts or that rebukes to convict. It doesn't make me change. But if I'm in the word submitted to the Spirit of God and to the power of God and desirous of growing and remaining in fellowship, I will change. This is the scripture pointing the finger. You've been there, I've been there. I've been here where my son, who's preaching the scriptures, putting something on my own life that I've got to change. It's not my son. It's the scripture pointing his finger at me, putting it on a way I'm thinking, something I said, something I've done the way I've treated my wife. It was not pleasing to the Lord. And one of Scripture's works is to put the finger on those things so that we will respond. What a blessing. This is not a whacking with the Scripture over the head. This is a loving Father not letting us go our own way. What a beautiful work of the Word. Hebrews 4 gives us a great picture, right? In verse 12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrows, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must answer. But we know that this uncovering, which is crazy uncomfortable, I know it, you know it, it's not pleasing, it's not fun, it's embarrassing sometimes, it's shameful sometimes, but it is for our good and administered with the loving touch of your heavenly Father. Which, by the way, we see in the third work, correction. I didn't really understand this till I studied it this week or yesterday. It's, it's the restoration of something to its original state, to its original condition. If I knocked over the mic stand and I noticed it and went over and picked it up, I'm correcting it, I'm restoring it, I'm bringing it back to wholeness, where it belonged, the way it was intended. If your friend tripped and fell, you wouldn't walk past him, you would, out of care and concern, you would put a hand up and pick him up. This is correction. This is scripture's positive provision for those who have accepted its negative reproof. 
Paul told the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20 when he was last probably going to see them. He said, and now I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What a healing work of the word in the loving hand of our Father as we heed it. Fourth and final work is training in righteousness. Has an idea of long-term training up. Training up a child over the long haul. And the Christian life, if the Lord tarries, is a long haul. We have the confidence that Paul told the Philippians, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. He will finish it. This is the training in righteousness by the day of Christ Jesus. Until he returns or until we go home, if we allow the word to do its work in our heart, we will be growing in righteousness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from most of that that's bad in us. No, from all unrighteousness. He makes us pure in Jesus Christ. What a loving father. So that, verse 17, you will be complete, capable, proficient in everything that God calls you to do. You'll be equipped and enabled to meet any demands of righteousness so that we all can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So God's word can impart wisdom that leads to salvation. It is faithful to do the work that God sends it to complete our training in righteousness and to sanctify us. Our job is, as Paul told Timothy, continue in it. Don't get sidetracked. Let it do its work. And it's not burdensome. They are delightful, more desirable than gold. Yes, than much pure gold, sweeter than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them there is great reward. Don't you see this understanding the work of the word that the psalmist laid out is a joyous thing? So we're in, if, if Timothy was in last days, we're really in last days. What should we expect in the last days? We saw Amos' warning of what the tendencies of human flesh would yield. Paul doesn't leave it out either. Look down at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4. What will it be like? This is why we shouldn't be astonished by the trends of today. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth. And they will turn aside to myths. So if that's what people are going to do, what are we to do? Certainly we have the imperative to continue, but 
certainly to Timothy, who was a pastor. He gives us, and I would say, even though this is written to a pastor, to an elder, to a teacher of the word, it applies to everyone. Back up, you only need to back up the, to the beginning of chapter four to see how we, what we are to do in response of the uh, intolerance of sound doctrine. And, and the exhortation comes with solemn, powerful gravity. I solemnly exhort you, Timothy, in the presence of God. We say that at weddings, when we're making solemn vows. I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge. It's a reminder of judgment. Who is the judge of the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. What do we do? Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. There is no off season. Preach the word. There's another imperative. It's a command, and that's what we will do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reminder in Paul's letter to Timothy of what the work of your word does, which accomplishes your will. It never returns void. By the power of your spirit, the authority of your own writing, Lord, we submit to it. Thank you that it, we can each reflect on our salvation and see how you used your word and in our walk to see how you continually use it, both to teach, to rebuke, to lift us up and correct us, and then to continually train us in the things that please you. In your name we pray, amen.